and welcome to Matt Chat, where each week I invite an Empire LARPer to come on the channel and talk to me, Matt Pennington, about some aspect of Empire or live roleplaying that we're both interested in. So firstly, a quick mea culpa for the long break. We recorded these conversations about various different topics at the start of 2020. At the time we were frantically preparing for the first event, but I still managed to find time to edit and release four of them onto our channel. Then the pandemic took hold, and that meant I didn't have any events to prepare for. Of course, at the moment I had all the time in the world to spare, I suddenly couldn't find any time to edit and release the remaining conversations. So they've been languishing on my hard drive since then, waiting for me to get my finger out and do the hard work of editing them. I promise I'm now back on with them, and I'll try and get all the conversations we recorded put out over the next month or two. But to start us off, I've got Mike Kilburn, so I'll let him introduce himself and tell us what he's come on the channel to talk about. Hello, I am Mike. Uh, I play uh, Vaco Bondforger in Empire, and I'm here to talk about uh, the Priest game and hats and whether or not you should pursue them. Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting conversation. Um, I had quite a few people wanting to talk to me about priests, mostly members of my crew, actually, which was a little bit kind of unnerving. It's like they can talk to me <laughs> whenever they like. But I, I, yeah, I'm really interested in this angle with hats as well. I think that's going to be mm. really interesting. What what kind of motivates you to in in that in your interest in that subject? Um, mostly because I've seen it from both sides. I, I'm currently in possession of a hat as an Empire player, and I know how odd the circumstances were in which I won it. Um, and so whilst I've had this position, I've been able to reflect on what is this like for other players? Who? What about my competition? What do they feel? Um, and also, it gives you a very different angle in the way that people are moving around the field, what their intentions are, and the way that they interact with you, which really kind of helped me paint a picture in my mind of what is a hat for and what isn't a hat for. Mm. For anyone who's listening who doesn't know what a hat is, that's a sort of crude uh, empire jargon uh, that's sprung <laughs> up to cover any conceivable title or position of power. I think we started calling them hats first, but I could well be wrong. But it certainly has uh, it's just become common parlance amongst the sort of group of, of people, I guess, who play empire. Which, which hat have you got, Mike? I am the Cardinal of Loyalty. Uh, which ties into the the synod game as well. So I'm I'm well aware of kind of how that impacts the priest game. Uh, so it kind of feeds into both our conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And it's quite a powerful hat. Uh, obviously, there are different. You know, <laughs> all titles are equal, but some titles are more equal than others. Yes, um, all titles are not equal. <laughs> so and the cardinal <laughs> is pretty high up there. Like from my perspective, uh, I don't know how yes. you view it. It's quite a powerful position. It is uh, certainly in the, in one of the unique powers that the Assembly of Nine can revoke an empress. Mm. Um, there's a great deal of change that we can put in the game, but similarly, there's a lot of the utility behind it, which doesn't even come from any powers that are built in. Uh, just just that kind of acknowledgement that you are uh, representative of that virtue of of which virtue you are representative of. It kind of it gives you a presence that perhaps you didn't have before, but it's not as active as it might be perceived. Yes, absolutely. The I think the bigger titles particularly come with a kind of an aura of importance, um, mm. which is not inappropriate, actually, when you think about it logically. There's a sense that, that they, they actually grant you a great deal of soft power uh, in addition to any kind of defined legal powers that they might have. 
True. I think soft power is an extremely good way of putting it. But it's, it's kind of why I wanted to talk about hats and titles and however you want to call it is I originally phrased it, I think, when I approached you on this subject of why you shouldn't pursue hats. Um, I think that's kind of, it's almost like the splash of cold water that I would give anyone that says, my ambition in this game, what I want to strive to do is go for this Imperial title, because I don't think it should be the, the sole thing that your character wants. I think it should be something that your character influences uh, and wants influence over. And if that's a an additional reward for that end goal, then great. But there's so much about the hat, the title that comes with politicking and luck that is completely out of your hands. Um, so I'm very wary when someone says, the thing I want to do is I want to become Cardinal or I want to become Empress. I think I think it's the kind of game that you really want to set yourself up for if you don't mind and have a plan for failure. Right, yes. I mean, that makes sense, certainly. Um, I mean, if you just take the most trivial example, I suppose, if you set yourself up to become the throne, the, the statistical chances are that you're going to fail. Yeah. You know, so far, only one character, has, one player has succeeded in doing that in seven years of play. And, and there's 2,100 players currently playing the game. So statistically, the odds are against you. Hmm. I guess there's an interesting point there about the difference between having a goal because your enjoyment will come from succeeding in that goal and having a goal because your enjoyment will come from trying to achieve that goal. Yes, uh, that is that is an extremely way, a good way of putting it. To a degree, even even the things that you can do around the title um, is very important. Like it said in the Priest game, you have as many votes as you have people that you can convince to vote alongside you. Yes. Like it's it's a big game, and that's the thing I love about the priest game. It's it's very, it's very modular to the type of player that you want to be, from a national level to a a wider synod level. Um, but those people, you can almost see kind of like the the Game of Thrones politicking around the cardinals. If you look closely enough, there's always people trying to get that influence, um, sway their opinion. And that, I think, is is such a fun game that I wish I was a part of um, in a slightly different capacity. But it's really interesting kind of seeing how people try and sway you. And that could be anyone. Anyone can do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, certainly from my point of view as a game designer, when we created Empire, you know, our experience, I think Empire is probably one of relatively few large fest games that places clearly defined legal powers for the society that all the characters live in within the, the purview of players mm. quite often that, that would be an npc would hold those powers they perhaps would be a bit reticent about using them but often you know the king or the queen or whatever or the ruler or the runner of the society is an npc for some reason and the understanding when it's an npc is that the game is to try and influence the NPC to get them to do what you want. That, that you know, if you want them to do this or you want them to do that, you, your goal is to role play with them to get them to, to do what you want them to do. And from my perspective as the game designer, when we said, oh, no, 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 in Empire, all these titles will be player held, absolutely every single one, that doesn't change that fundamental concept that you as a player 
should look at all those pieces as a set of chess pieces on a board that you're trying to move. The fact that they're players instead of NPCs should hopefully make them easier to move. They're not constrained by any out-of-character considerations about what the game wants or anything like that. They're just purely influenceable in character. And 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 moving them, you know, moving a cardinal to a position you want or a senator or a general or anybody is what the game is about. Mm. And it's almost freeing, unpredictable of, as you rightly said, an NPC restrictions and expectations. Uh, there'll be certain things that NPCs just simply can't do um, because of this kind of, or perceived to be that they can't do because of the invisible weight of whatever their brief tells them. Whereas with an active player, you you only know how that player will behave and respond by interacting with that character. And I think it goes both ways too, because there are like little pieces of bits and pieces of plot that come to cardinals to kind of meet out and to get others to facilitate. So there is that kind of I, I imagine that you could be someone in a in a titled position and hog everything that comes your way to yourself. But that sounds like a very good way to exhaust yourself for a weekend. Whereas kind of being this dispenser of information and co-opting people to do things for you and alongside you is part of the fun of the title. Yeah, totally. And I think the other thing from my view, uh, from the way I look at it as a game designer, is that even if you've got a hat, the chances that you can do the things you want to do as that hat, with no reference to any other player character in the game, are probably pretty slim. There are a Mm. couple of powers. Like if you're an art mage, you absolutely can decide which eternal to to send a message to uh, without recourse to any other player. But if you're a cardinal, all of your key powers are enacted through the Assembly of Nine. You yeah. can't do that without influencing the other players. And and that so effectively, the same arguments about the point of the game is to influence the people with hats is true of the people with hats as much as it is true of the people without the hats. Exactly. I imagine so I, certainly when I've come into this position and looked at that as a character, because there's always potential schisms and uh, little rumours and murmurings that come out from the winds of fortune that you'll take a stance on, quite often motivated by national uh, brief or personal uh, beliefs. And then your job is to then convince a body of people that have elected you into that position to to kind of facilitate what your ends are. And so you're playing the same game back. You're, you're trying to canvas votes much like anyone else. Um, you just have you you can kind of take center stage and say everyone look pay attention to me a little bit more easily yeah i think from my i guess from my perspective the function of the hat firstly it's to create a goal so that people can think yeah i want to try and become that secondly mm. it's to create a clearly defined lever that exists in the game so that people can go that's that there's that lever that does that if i want to if i want an imperial general to take his army and invade okadov the full nation i would need an imperial general to submit this order there are the 26 imperial generals i need to persuade one of them to flick his leader in such a way that this happens so you you see the leaders that the leaders are defined by the titles that change the world and then you can see really really clearly 
who's got control of that thing. One of the advantages of the hats is that they're all on the wiki, who all the title holders. So if you sat there before an event thinking, right, this is what my plan is. This is what I'm going to do at this event. I'm going to try and make this happen. Who would have control over the things I want? Well, it would be this person, this person, this person. Okay, that title is held by them. That title is held by them. It, the goal is to make those levers very, very visible to the players mm. and then to put control of those levers in a player's hands so that effectively the whole thing closes back on itself and, and players are in control of what levers get pulled and what don't without any recourse to us. That's the really nice bit about it. We, we have no say of any kind in how the players pull those levers. We say what happens when they do. You know, I don't want to sit here and pretend, oh, we don't do anything because that's not it at all. Mm. But we don't have any say over what levers get pulled and by who and how. No, I think I think it's very clear in the way of the, at the Synod game level where you can raise a statement of principle, uh, this assembly believes this is true. Or you get reactive to um, mandates. Uh, yes, um, and opportunities that are presented, usually generated by those earlier statements of principle. It becomes this kind of between games back and forth with yourselves as the game runners and us as the players, where we flag up, this is what we're interested in. We can kind of see how the world reacts. And then from there, there might be opportunities for change or there might be a gentle putting down if it just simply isn't something that's feasible within the game design, which is usually extremely well-reasoned when it comes out. Um, but I like that kind of long-term discourse where we can really feel like we are changing the world by the things that we do and creating opportunities. It feels like almost it's a direct line to a, a wider lever uh, representative of the the wider world that helps it feel engaging and very filled out as a as a setting. I mean, it's nice to hear you say that. Obviously, that kind of feeling that that the levers are, are there and and that, that they en enrich the 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 sense of playing the game, enrich the sense of the world, and so forth. Is obviously exactly what we're trying to achieve. I think the goal for me in Empire was always to leave the players in no doubt that they were in control of the world and in control of what happened. Uh, not total control, because obviously you don't control all the NPCs and they're also trying to do things. But but the, the players are the leaders of the Empire and that they are dictating the direction it takes. I think that comes across very well, um, particularly when, when you've got instances of, say, for instance, in a Winds of Fortune, uh, you get to see that that reflection of what you've done come into play. And there's usually a couple of named NPCs that have are vying for different options for what you're doing, but never is it this one is the right one and this is the, the one that clearly the game runners uh, want. When we get to that kind of stage, it's very clearly like these are the options that we can facilitate into the game, and now it's down for you, the player base, to either seize those opportunities or to miss this opportunity yes obviously from a game design perspective i mean it's really interesting from a first firstly from a plot point of view if you put two options into the game and one is clearly the one you want the players to choose and is clearly the one you want to be chosen or is clearly the favorable one what you're running there is not a plot what you're running is i want this change to happen to the world and i'm going to introduce this in character pretense of choice but i'm going to load the scales in such a way that everybody will choose the option i've already pre-selected for you so it's an it's a 
an illusion of choice. Now, in a sense, all things are an illusion in a live role-playing game, but there the choice is spectacularly illusionary. It, it, you know, if it, <laughs> it's like the, the Eddie Izzard sketch, cake or death. You know, <laughs> would you like cake or death? That's not a choice. You know, everyone chooses cake, not death. It's not a choice. So it, so what we do, if there's something where we go, well, we, we actually just want to change the game in such and such a way, instead of trying to present that as a game choice and going, here are your options, oh, why don't you pick this one? We just go, no, just change the world. Here is an IC conceit so everyone can go, oh, that's why things changed. But fundamentally, we just made that change because we think it will make the game better. Um, and that frees us up that then when we're creating the plots, we can, you know, there's no sense of, oh, well, we'd like the players to pick this or we'd like the players to pick that. I can say with absolute hand-on-heart honesty, I've n never been in a situation where, it, you know, I've looked at it thought, oh, yeah, we need the players to pick this. Occasionally you'll think, oh, I want the players to pick this because it'll be funny and it'll lead to a hilarious game and there'll be conflict and trouble and strife and it'll be brilliant. But there's never been a situation where I thought, no, no, we need the players. The, the, you know, the game needs this to happen or, or something like that. It just because the moment you're in that headspace, you're going to, as a game writer, you're going to load the scales in favour of that choice and then it ceases to be a choice. And, mm -hmm. and I, I think at the point where players sense that you're doing that, often what happens is they will then try to work out what they should and shouldn't be doing either because they want to do it or because they don't want to do it. But, but you don't, I, I want players to react to the in-character developments of the world in character. I don't ever want them to be thinking, Oh yeah, but what does PD want to happen? It's like, who, who, who gives a shit? No, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> you shouldn't. Yeah. I think it helps that you're so transparent when there is a change, which is blatantly for the game running. And usually mm. the IC conceit feels secondary to the art of character announcement. So you'll say, this is the thing we're changing. This is why we're changing it. These are the benefits that we anticipate. Here's the IC conceit so that if this comes up in conversation, you can just address it without it detracting too much from the flow of your game. Yeah, absolutely. And and that is that that what you've described there is literally the pattern. If you go and look at like the rules updates, they're literally structured virtually in that order. And the IC conceit is after the out of character explanation of why we've made this choice. I think they're in that order. But but it's certainly they're in that order in my mind. What is important is this is the change and this is why we think it will benefit the game. This is our understanding, this is our thinking, this is why this is happening. Oh, and here's an in-character reason so you can talk about it. Yeah, it's the out-of-character thinking that's important there. You said, I was interested, you said you, you got your position, you thought through luck. Talk me through how yes. that happened. The first time I ran, and this is, this is I, I came into the game with no intention to run for Cardinal. That wasn't how I anticipated my weekend going. Uh, I just happened to bump into another player, and they said I, they, think, they thought I'd do a good job at it. And so I put my name on the board. I did the hustings. I honestly didn't expect to get it. Uh, but I won not by a single vote, but by a single upgrade. Uh, there was a voting strength of three between me and the other candidate. Fantastic. And that's, that's been pretty persistent. Um, this, this is the third time I've won it, and it was the same again, where it was just the strength of a single vote was really the difference between me getting it and me not getting it, which is why I put so... And that's why I put so much thought into, what about the people that tried <laughs> for a year uh, to build up that influence? And it's not to say that I, I kind of 
failed up. I think what the benefit that I brought was that a lot of people thought that my character would be good for the job, and so put their their ringing their hat in that ring, as it were. But there's so much that goes into it, and I was something on that day that no one could have anticipated that just changed it completely. I mean, I think what, firstly, there's a couple of things I think are wonderful about that story. One is that that the vote, the margin was so slender. It's really nice to hear that 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 the you know that literally it can come down to such a tiny, tiny difference in you know that a single ritual or a single upgrade could have swung that vote one way or the other. As again, from a game design point, the idea of knife edge votes is really nice because it makes people feel that they had the power to change that, to influence that. I think there's um, a sense often, particularly in British democracy with our first past the post system, uh, where you can easily get a sense that your vote doesn't matter. In fact, I was talking to a friend recently I'm, for the record, 48. I've never missed voting in a general election, and I don't believe I have ever successfully voted for a candidate who won. I don't believe, or I've never voted for a candidate who successfully won an election. Uh, and I think I'm not sure I've ever even voted in an election where the doubt, the the the, the outcome was in any doubt. Um, so I've literally never had a meaningful vote at any point in my life, despite being 48. And I think, you know, that kind of sense of, of disempowerment that that can easily result if you're not careful was something we're really keen to avoid with Empire. We wanted to keep the votes tight and very close to the player base and very easy to influence. Um, so it's really and so that people felt like their votes mattered, because if they don't, then then if they don't feel like they matter, then they don't matter. Uh, because yeah. what, what you think and feel to be true is generally what is it, it is a reality of itself in a lot of game. I think there's in the certainly in the priest game there's a really good means by which there will always be a divide which is kind of the way that the individual nations are briefed to uh, approach the virtues and the synod and their own little half magics which if you look closely enough could arguably be a little bit unvirtuous if you squint um and so you've got this kind of i mean currently one of the the big discussions has been heterodoxy versus orthodoxy and that has really divided in terms of some nations that are very kind of a bit more free and liberal in the way that they interpret the the virtues and the nations that are very orthodox and have a very strict understanding of what it is and what it isn't and so any time there's an election and you have a candidate from one nation, you'll have a couple of nations that intrinsically have an opposition against that candidate. Yeah, the it's quite interesting to see the orthodoxy heterodoxy um, debate. Um, it's interesting to see quite who, because actually, even within nations, it's not uniform. While it is certainly true that some nations culturally are more heterodox than others i've had discussions with players who were very unhappy that their nation was being presented as heterodox or orthodox when they felt it was not so so you, you can get into interesting situations where we as an outsider will look at it and go well clearly that nation's pretty uh, fast and loose in its interpretation of the virtues or the way or the doctrines of the faithful or whatever it is uh, but a player sees it quite differently. But it's nice that all those conflicts come out in play, that they, they create that kind of uh, ground over which people can argue back and forth. Mm. I think it's it's very good. It's something that I've always liked, that there's 
in most nation briefs, there's a reason to interact with other people of your nation. In the virtues, they are all very active. Um, they all clearly are designed around getting people engaged with the game. And the false virtues seem to be designed around kind of having their own allure, but also being almost antithesis to the game structure itself. Um, and then just kind of the different ways you can tweak each of those things to create just kind of this impetus to go out, engage, role play, even to the point of anointings, um, which is just literally you can spend a, a liao or your resource and suddenly you give someone a role play effect, which is quite often a means by which they can do the thing or they can overcome a thing which is uh, stopping them from doing the thing. Yeah, totally. The false virtues is quite interesting. Um, I, I'm going to be really careful here because I don't want to talk too much about them and I don't want to give anything away. But I know from my perspective that, you know, certainly me and my team were concerned that they would be assimilated into the imperial faith very easily by a player base. It, the, the empire is 400 years of suppressing hatred and uh, freedom and other uh, false virtues, anarchy, whatever you want to call them. And, I, you know, whether or not the players ever decide that actually they shouldn't do that, they should do, they should treat these things differently, it's totally up to them. But we wanted it to be a very significant decision. We wanted it to be a very momentous decision. And we wanted it, you know, to carry that weight of history that it really ought to. But it's actually very difficult when players have only been playing the game for a handful of years but it, it generally seems to have worked really well. I think the majority of players are, are pretty uh, opposed to the false virtues. They can see them for what they are and, and see how, you know, uh, there's, there certainly isn't a desire to have a big, broad church where everyone's welcome. We're not seeing that from, um, from the you know, the way players respond to plots, which is really, really nice because in a LARP game, there's nothing more boring than a broad church where everyone is welcome. Yeah, and it's reflected too in kind of the, the, the foreign game of your neighbours, your allies in, in other uh, countries they usually have a twisted version of your own faith or of it's easy when it's the barbarians because they don't follow the way but then you've got people that you're supposed to be working with and allied with and then their their ideals just slightly different to yours and that gets really interesting i mean right now without going too much into the details of it we have a situation in game where the synod is behaving very differently because of political arrangements and we don't want to change certain things because it might upset a foreign policy problem and that's very very interesting to work through when as a priest one of your things is well we must guard the way of virtue and we're right because the brief tells us we're right these people are wrong but we're just playing nicely to them <laughs> I'm not genuinely not sure which of I can think of two or three foreign nations that would all fit into exactly that scenario <laughs> you've just described, which is really nice. I'm not going to ask you which one it is. That would spoil my fun. Uh, I would just leave myself <laughs> guessing. Yeah, those compromises of you know moral principles versus pragmatic worldly principles about how the empire handles its relations with foreign nations but and particularly as you say it's almost easier when they have a completely different faith 
The Commonwealth, for instance, has a completely different faith to the Empire. And you can sort of just sit there and go, well, they're just wrong. They're just wrong. We're never going to see eye to eye. Let's just not talk about it with them. But the moment their interpretation of the faith is very similar to yours, but different in important but subtle ways, suddenly you've got all sorts of headaches, I think. Um, you, you, it creates that that ground. The, the common ground actually creates something to fight over. Yes, uh, fully in agreement. Say, for instance, that my one and only time interacting with Andy Raff in any meaningful capacity was as a, a builder from one of the foreign nations that worshipped uh, gods and idols and ended with him, with him bonking me on the head with a staff or speaking an outrageous French accent. It was, it was wonderful, but it was easy because it was so definitively wrong. And every priest that was around me, I could say, well, they worship a deity. And they were like, oh... That's that's horrendous. But then when you get to these kind of more intricate, um, the virtue but different ones, yeah, it's 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 the the crunch point where we are so solid in our beliefs that we would never take anything away from them, and that's the same from them. It's not that we need to impart the way of virtue to them, like some kind of colonialist liberator. Um, it's the fact that they're they're wrong in just enough ways to make it extremely difficult to navigate. Yes, totally. Yeah, it's interesting to see the element of the synod at play in foreign relations, you know, uh, and I, I think there's a really nice juxtaposition um, between them and the Senate. And juxtaposition is probably the wrong word, but that that conflict uh, over who, uh, where the power lies and where the influence lies and where the correct approach is and isn't. And it's it's been really, really nice from my point of view to see the synod so active in that game. Uh, which is where they should be, absolutely, one hundred percent. It's you know, it's very much um, an area where morality is very important. So it's nice to see that. So uh, one thing I would challenge you on, I, I think you know, you almost seem to suggest that don't make a getting a hat be your goal. You know, because you, it risks that you won't succeed and then you won't be happy. And I know for me, from a game design point of view, you know, the, one of the functions of imperial titles is to create simple, easily defined goals for people. You know, you can think, I want to become the art mage. I want to become the cardinal. I want to do this. And, and it, it's absolutely intentional that players think, right, I'm going to come to the game and try and make that happen. And I do accept that this is, you know, this is absolutely to the heart of a PvP conflict because unless you're fortunate enough that nobody else is going for that title, you are going to be in conflict with another player. So one of you is, or more of you, is going to fail. But I think it's an important part of the game. And I, I do think as well that the harder you work at it, the better your chances. Would you not, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not sure I would accept the idea it just comes down to luck. Oh, absolutely. And I'd certainly... I never want to say that my case is the the prime example of how it goes. There are, I mean, even now with the vacant throne in game, we're seeing a lot of people making really large moves to try and make themselves look like attractive candidates for the Empress. And it's, you do make your own look. You do, by yes. making yourself a visible presence in these forums and scenarios, you have a better chance of being elected. No one's, no one likes it when someone that they don't know and have never heard of gets elected into a position of power. Whereas if you're recognizable and people know what you stand for, and then you get the title, it makes sense. It's, oh, okay, of course they did, because they, they worked for it. And certainly, 
in even though winning the title from my experience in play was a lot down to luck kind of retaining it has always been a little bit more um active i've always had to put a little bit more effort into being that presence uh, meeting the expectations um so you're right in in that it's not fair to say don't run for a title i would never ever say don't run for a title or don't make it a, a goal for your character after all ambition is a virtue yes but i think it's important to construct your character it's it's like you said earlier the value is in the chase of where you get that role play where yeah. when you are vying for that position what do you uncover and that's that i think has a greater value than um the the kind of the winning of it yeah totally i was listening uh about a couple before christmas a couple of months back to a uh, dr richard wiseman on radio four um and he's some sort of economist whatever i don't know but he'd done a study of lucky people uh and he's produced a book called the look factor which is how to make yourself be luckier and in essence what they did was they did a huge amount of analysis of people who were lucky or unlucky partly by their own design, uh, by their own categorization. But effectively, what they found was that people who are open to new prospects, to new, and particularly to opportunities, people who approach their life with the assumption that they are going to do well or going to succeed or going to, uh, going to benefit, people who take a kind of optimistic approach and are, are very open to new opportunities tend to be much luckier than quote unquote than people who take a pessimistic approach take a, a kind of negative view because in essence the more risks you take the more that pay off I, you know i haven't read the book and he's much more articulate uh, guy about the argument than i am but in essence it is that it is a kind of an attempt to do a scientific study of that truism that you make your own look that there are things you can do that will will simply improve your odds and they come partly they come down to attitude partly they come down to hard work i think there are some people who are lucky enough to fall on their feet with with imperial titles and to get one with relative ease but i I do see a lot of people working very hard either to get them or to hold them uh, both of which is great yeah i think a good example of kind of that same mentality kind of actively pursuing something and making your own luck comes in say for instance you want to get something through the general assembly at a greater majority that effectively is code for the priest player of this is your weekend Uh, your weekend is going to be canvassing votes convincing people because that number isn't set by how many people vote it's how many people are on the field And so you've got a very hard threshold. You've got to combat the fact that not every person with a uh, congregation is an active priest that votes. And so you need to find those people that have an interest or drag those people that that could be interested. Um, In seeing one of these done, we found out that you can be falling over your feet drunk but still your vote will be counted in the civil service, which was very handy to learn um, for making sure we hit that greater majority. Um, but yeah, it's very, it, it is kind of that truism come to life again. Of you've got to work hard to make your own luck, but like that, those are really high numbers and it takes a, it, your whole weekend will be dedicated to pursuing that. And it's, if you get it, what a feeling. Yes, totally. Just to, uh pick at some of those interesting points that you've raised there one is that as you say you can turn up and you can as long as they're conscious 
they can vote. Um, <laughs> I genuinely don't know. I would have to now go and check whether they still need to be alive to vote. I suspect <laughs> they do, but it would certainly raise a fascinating constitutional question if you could get somebody to vote using Speak With Dead. Um, oh, my word. It's, certainly, it, it's one to try, isn't it, if I was a character? Um, I, I assume you have to be alive, but I don't know. So, yeah, I'm genuinely not sure, but but certainly anyone can vote. But but you're right that a load of priests don't vote. And there's an assumption, and we get this a lot, actually, when people are talking to us about, and they'll say, oh, the game, the, the synod design is broken. It's too difficult to get a greater majority because of all these people who don't vote. What you need to do is get rid of all those people who don't vote, and then it'll be easier to get a greater majority. And I have to patiently explain, they are part of the game design. If they weren't there, it would be trivially easy to get a great majority, and we would have to massively downplay the power of what a greater majority would could do. You know, I would argue that a greater majority in the General Assembly is probably the single... It's one of the two most powerful vote options in the game. It's, it's comparable with a constitutional vote in the Senate, if not yeah. more powerful. It can do some astonishing... It can remove the throne... It can excommunicate. It can do incredibly powerful things. So it's really difficult to get. And what happens is they'll go a couple of years and people find it difficult and say, well, I couldn't persuade enough people to turn up and vote to get a great majority. And then suddenly there'll be almost one or two, you know, they'll be like buses. They all come along at once, <laughs> proving that actually, yes, it can be done. But how do you do it? Well, You've got to go to people, those non-voting priests, with an issue that they really care about. That they And you've got to move them. You've got to persuade them and convince them or physically drag them down to the, <laughs> the, um, the, the, the hub to vote. And actually, weirdly, we're going back there in game design terms to where we started because it's like every character with a congregation has a hat. That's true. You know, every character with a congregation has a defined amount of power in the game. And there'll be a load of if you've got a congregation and you're turning up at the event, there's going to be a load of people at the event who want your vote. They, you know, they want to role play at you. <laughs> they, you know, they want you to vote for whatever is their issue. On and it won't be one thing either. It'll be multiple different things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, every every player who's got a congregation, every character of the congregation, in a very real sense, I think, has a hat. I think that's a very good way of looking at it. And you'll, you will, the moment you join that queue, there will be someone who wants something passed with that aforementioned greater majority who wants to talk to you about the actual thing they've put on. Because those pieces of paper are wonderful, but quite often nuances of topics just don't have, they don't have the room for them. And so quite often you'll get someone as a living footnote to that motion ready to engage with you and convince you of this is what it, this is what it means this is the context behind it and try and swing you that way yeah mm, well that's been great um is there anything you know before we close anything you want to you feel we haven't touched on um, the only thing I, I wanted to kind of briefly touch on is I really like, and it kind of goes back to the non-voting priests. Um, I find that quite often the reason why that happens, it, it's a combination of things. Maybe some people just aren't interested in that game and they're just selling the layout. And again, that's that's by design. That's the way that they are playing the game. But for me, as I'm in the nation of Wintermark, 
the duality and dual role of a priest um, being there are Stormcrows with congregations who work in the Synod, and there are Stormcrows without congregations who still guide the nation. And that kind of very interesting blurring of the lines quite often comes up in conversation of what does and does not constitute as a priest. And I've always felt that feels very, as part of the game design, that's meant to be a question that you ask because it's all about how much does your cultural heritage play into the established uh, dynamics of the empire. Yeah, totally. We often get asked, because there's a couple of places on the wiki here and there where it refers to priests. Priests can do this. And people will say, well, what does that mean? And they want a kind of def they want a definition of a priest like and often what they're really seeking is the kind of definition you would get in an AD&D hardback book you know a priest <laughs> is a character with one or more cleric levels or and they want a definition that is a priest has a congregation or a priest is this or a priest is that and my answer is always like well priest is a word in the world you know how would you define a priest in the real world you know there's a vicar at my local school you know, he's an obvious person. You think, well, he's a priest. But I could give you two or three reasons why you might not think of him as a priest. Gonna because he's not relevant. But actually, in the real world, things are vague and have different meanings in different circumstances. So, a classic example in Empire: who has the right of witness? That's priests have the right of witness, but that's a legally defined concept. If you have a congregation, you're part of the synod. You have the right of witness. Then, somewhere in the doctrine of faith. There's a bit where people have argued that only priests are allowed to discuss virtue or because only priests are, cannot be guilty of false preaching if they are having an academic discussion. Or some, I can't remember. It's some crazy interpretation of the way it's written. But effectively, who can and cannot talk about religion? People argue comes down to who is and is not a priest. And there there's no clear definition of what on earth it means by a priest. And people kind of are seeking a definition. And the answers are, well, it depends on your culture. It, you know, if I was playing a winter marker, I'd be like, well, Stormcrows are our priests. And if you said, well, that Stormcrow hasn't got a congregation, I'd just laugh at you. I'd be like, well, I don't give a rat's ass. He's that's, a priest. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's my Stormcrow. I go to him with my problems. They guide me to virtue. That's a priest. That's a priest. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that, that, there is a really strong and that cultural elements there in most of the nation guides in Navarre, you know, it, it doesn't matter whether they've got a congregation or not. That's not the question. The question is whether they guide people. Um, yes, quite. So, yeah. So I, I think it's nice that there is that kind of what I think of as a more realistic, a more real world definition in which actually there isn't a definition and that the, the, the thing is mutable and, and depends who you are and where you're looking at and what the circumstances are um, agreed I've, it's something i've i've always enjoyed playing with in terms of the the way the game is structured and i just i really like it great well i think that's probably a good place to wrap it there it's been short but really interesting and i think we touched on a lot of, of fascinating subjects so thank you for coming on and i hope you enjoyed the podcast i have indeed thank you very much for having me Great, maybe we'll have you back on soon. Cheers, Mike. Thanks to my guest, Mike Kilburn. Thanks to you for listening. We've still got around half a dozen conversations that we recorded last year, so I promise we'll try and get another one edited quickly so we can release it next week.